Section 57 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 The Classical Renaissance by Sir Richard C. Jebb. Part 5 France had received the influences of Italian humanism with the facility of a country to which they were historically congenial and had been penetrated by them before the conflict opened by Luther had become a disturbing force in Europe. In France, the basis of the national character was Latin and no admixture of other elements could overpower the innate capacity of a Latin race to assimilate the spirit of classical antiquity. The University of Paris was one of the greatest intellectual centers in Europe, drawing to itself, in some measure, every new form of knowledge while it promoted communication between Paris and all foreign seats of literary activity. It was in 1494, when the Italian Renaissance was at its height, that Charles VIII made his expedition to Naples. For nearly a century afterwards, until the line of the Valois kings ended with the death of Henry III in 1589, the intercourse between France and Italy was close and continuous. A tincture of Italian manners pervaded the French court. Italian studies of antiquity reacted upon French literature and art. Thus, from the beginning of the 16th century, France offered a smooth course to the classical revival. Greek studies had, however, been planted in France at a somewhat earlier time. In 1458, Gregory Tifernas, an Italian of Greek origin, had petitioned the University of Paris to appoint him teacher of Greek. He received that post with a salary, on condition that he should take no fees, and should give two lectures daily, one on Greek and the other on rhetoric. The scholastic theology and logic were then still dominant at Paris, while the humanities seemed to have occupied an inferior place. But, at any rate, the university had now given official sanction to the teaching of Greek. The eminent Byzantine, John Lascaris, lectured on that language at Paris in the reign of Charles VIII. His teaching was continued at intervals under Louis XII, who once sent him as ambassador to Venice, and also under Francis I, for whom he supervised the formation of a library at Fontainebleau. A still more eminent name in the early history of French humanism is that of the Italian Jerome Aleander, afterwards so strenuous an antagonist of the Reformation. Coming to Paris in 1508, at the age of 28, he gave lectures in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, winning a reputation which caused him to be appointed rector of the university. On his return to Rome in 1516, he became librarian of the Vatican, and in 1538 was made a cardinal. Aleander, who was fortunate in the time of his work at Paris, has been regarded, probably with justice, as the first scholar who gave a decisive stimulus to philological studies in France. Just before the arrival of Aleander, Paris had begun to take part in the work of publishing Greek books, 
a field of labor in which its scholarly printers were afterwards to win so much distinction. The first Greek press at Paris was that of Gourmand, who, in 1507, issued the Grammar of Chrysoloras, Hesiod's Works and Days, the pseudo-Homeric Frogs and Mice, Theocritus, and Musaeus. Portions of Plutarch's Moralia followed in 1509 under the editorship of Aleander. After an interval, the length of which perhaps indicates that the demand for Greek classics was still very limited, a text of Aristophanes came from Gourmand's press in 1528. A Sophocles was published by Simon Colonnaeus in 1529. Robert Estien, 1503-59, to scholar and printer, brought out, in 1532, his Thesaurus Linguae Latinae, which was much enlarged in the succeeding editions, 1536 and 1543. Among his Greek editiones principis were those of Eusebius, 1544-6, Dionysius of Halicarnassus, 1547, Dio Cassius, 1548, and Appian. 1551. His son, Henri Estien, 1528-98, who had the distinction of first printing the Agamemnon in its entirety, is especially remembered by his great work, the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, 1572. Before the middle of the century, the stream of classical publications had fairly set in at Paris, and thenceforth continued to be abundant. Meanwhile, a French scholar had arisen who reflected luster on his country throughout Europe. Budeus, Guillaume Boudet, 1467-1540, after producing in 1514 an able treatise on Roman money, de Asse, gained a commanding reputation by his Commentarii Lingue Greche, published at Paris in 1529. That work, proved a mind to lexicographers, and was more particularly useful to students of the Greek orators, owing to the care which the author had bestowed on explaining the technical terms of Greek law. Budaeus was, beyond question, the best Greek scholar of his day in Europe, being superior in that respect to Erasmus, though no rival to him in literary genius. But special knowledge is superseded, while the salt of style lasts forever, and Erasmus lives while Budaeus is well-nigh forgotten. The relations between these two distinguished men became somewhat strained, through the fault, as it would seem, of Erasmus, whose sly strictures on the Frenchman are certainly suggestive of a covert jealousy, and French scholars made the quarrel a national one. Another French Hellenist of great eminence at this period is Turnibus, Adrien Turnebe, 1512-65, who belonged to the generation following that of Budaeus. The Royal College had been founded at Paris by Francis I in 1531, with the special object of encouraging Greek, Latin, and Hebrew learning. Turnibus was appointed in 1547 to the chair of Greek at that college. He also held the office of King's Printer. One of his chief works was an edition of Sophocles, published at Paris in 1553, 
which did much to determine the text followed by later editors of that poet before Bronck. Henri Estienne, who had been a pupil of Tournebus, has recorded his veneration for him. A better-known tribute is that paid by Montaigne, his junior by twenty-one years, who declares that, quote, Adrianus Tournebus knew more and knew it better than any man of his century or for ages past, end quote. He was entirely free, as Montaigne testifies, from pedantry. Quote, his quick understanding and sound judgment, end quote, were equally remarkable, whether the subject of conversation was literary or political. Lambinus, Denis Lambin, 1520 to 72, who in 1561 became a professor at the Royal College, published editions of Horace and Cicero, which made a new epoch in the study of those authors. Oratus, Jean Dorin, 1507 to 88, poet and scholar, who taught Greek at the college, shown especially in the criticism of Aeschylus. Mention is due also to the ill-fated Estienne Dolet, 1509-46, who took up the cause of the Ciceronians against Erasmus and, in 1536, at the age of 27, published his two folio volumes, Commentariorum Linguae Latinae. Ten years later, he was unjustly condemned by the Sorbonne on a charge of atheism and put to a cruel death. It should be noted that French scholars won special distinction in the study of Roman law. Instead of relying on commentators who had merely repeated the older glossatores, they turned to the original Roman texts. Cujasius, Jacques Cujas, 1522-90, the greatest interpreter of the sources of law, struck out a new path of critical and historical exposition. Donellus, Eugdonon, 1527-91, introduced systematic arrangement by his Commentarii Iuris Civilis. Brissonius, Barnabé Brisson, 1531-91, was preeminently the lexicographer of the civil law. Gothofredus, Denis Godefroy, 1549-1621, produced an edition of the Corpus Iuris Civilus, which is still valued. His son Jacques, 1587-1652, edited the Theodosian Code. During the century which followed the death of Turnibus, the history of French humanism is illustrated by names of the first magnitude. Such are those of Joseph Scaliger, Salmasius, and Casaubon. But these great scholars stand beyond the borders of the Renaissance and belong, like Bentley, to a maturer stage in the erudite development of classical philology. In them, however, the national characteristics of humanism were essentially the same that had appeared in French scholars of the preceding period. These characteristics are alert intelligence, fine perception, boldness in criticism, and lucid exposition. There is a notable difference between the Italian and the French mind of the Renaissance in relation to the antique. The Italian mind surrendered itself without reserve to classical antiquity. The Italian desire was to absorb the classical spirit and to reproduce it with artistic fidelity. 
The French mind, on the other hand, when brought into contact with the antique, always preserved its originality and independence. It contemplated the work of the ancients with intelligent sympathy, yet with self-possessed detachment, adopting the classical qualities which it admired, but blending them with qualities of its own, so that the outcome is not a reproduction, but a new result. This may be traced in the French architecture and sculpture of the Renaissance, no less than in the criticism and the literature. The seeds of humanism were brought to the Iberian Peninsula by a few students who had visited Italy in the 15th century. The Spaniard Arias Barbosa, who had studied under Politian, was regarded by his countrymen as their first effective Hellenist. He lectured on Greek for about 20 years at the University of Salamanca, attracting his hearers not only by, quote, a large and rich vein of learning, end quote, but also by his poetical taste. A higher fame, however, was gained by his contemporary, Antonio Lebrixa, Nebrisensis. After a sojourn of ten years in Italy, Lebrixa returned to Spain in 1473 and taught successively at the universities of Seville, Salamanca, and Alcalá. He is described as inferior to Barbosa in Greek scholarship, but wider in his range of knowledge, which included Hebrew. Lebrixa's reputation among his Spanish contemporaries, though not in Europe at large, was comparable to that which Budaeus enjoyed in France. He had some distinguished pupils. One of them was Fernando de Guzman Núñez, better known as Pintianus, from Pintia, the ancient name of Valladolid, whose fame even eclipsed his masters. Núñez taught Greek at Alcalá and subsequently at Salamanca, but in literature was best known by an edition of Seneca which appeared in 1536. Another pupil of Labrixa, the Portuguese historian and poet Resende, did much to promote classical education at Lisbon. Thus, the early part of the 16th century afforded grounds for the hope that in the peninsula, as in other countries of Europe, humanism was destined to flourish. Cardinal Ximenes, the founder of the college at Alcalá, caused the Greek text of the New Testament to be printed there, a task which was completed in 1514. It formed the fifth volume of the Complutensian Polyglot, published at Alcalá in 1522. That work reflected honor on the country, and might well be deemed a good omen for the future of Spanish learning. But after the compact of Charles V with Clement VII, concluded at Bologna in 1530, Spain was definitely ranged on the side of those forces which were reacting against the liberal studies of the Renaissance. The Spanish humanists had never been anything more than centers of cultivated groups enabled by powerful patronage to defy the general hostility of priests and monks. Humanism had gained no hold on Spanish society at large, and its foes were now more influential than ever. The Jesuits, who afterwards did so much for classical education elsewhere, were then no friends to it in Spain. The Spanish Inquisition was a terror to every suspected pursuit. It is not strange that, under such conditions, 
Greek learning did not prosper in the peninsula, though it still produced good Latinists, such as Francisco Sanchez of Brozas, 1523-1601, who wrote on grammar, and the Portuguese Achille Estasso, Achilles Stasius, 1524-81, whose criticism of Suetonius was highly praised by Casobon. The vigorous Iberian mind, with its strongly marked individuality, showed the impetus given by the Renaissance in other forms than those of classical scholarship. It found expression in the romance of Cervantes, in the epic of Camoens, and in the dramas of Lope de Vega, or, not less characteristically, in the wistful ardor of exploration which animated Vasco de Gama and Colombo. Reactionary Spain, a stepmother to classical studies on her own soil, also delayed their progress in the Netherlands. Little time could be spared to them by men who were struggling against Philip II for political independence and for the reformed religion. But when humanism had once been planted in the Low Countries, its growth was remarkably vigorous and rapid. The University of Leiden became the principal center of the new learning. Among scholars of Dutch birth at the period of the Renaissance, Erasmus is the first in time as in rank, but neither his higher training nor his life work was specially connected with his native land. He was, as we have seen, cosmopolitan. The first great name after his in the earlier annals of Dutch scholarship is that of Justus Lipsius, Joist Lips, 1547-1606, who was especially strong in knowledge of the Latin historians and of Roman antiquities. His chief work was his celebrated edition of Tacitus, 1575. William Cantor, 1542-75, of Utrecht, who did good work for Greek tragedy, laid down sound principles of textual criticism in his Syntagma de Ratione Emendandi Grecos Auctores, 1566. In the next generation, Vossius, Gerard John Voss, 1577-1649, rendered solid services to the historical study of antiquity, more especially by setting the example of treating ancient religions from the historical point of view. In Daniel Heinsius, 1580-1655, Holland produced a scholar who had more affinity with the Italian humanists. He excelled in the composition of Latin verse and prose, and, as an editor, in his treatment of the Greek poets. Hugo Grotius, Wieg van Groot, 1583-1645, owes his fame to the De Iuri Belli et Pacis, 1625, a work fundamental to the modern science of the law of nature and nations. He wrote Christus Patiens and two other plays in Latin verse. With regard to the earlier Dutch humanism as a whole, it may be said that its characteristic aim was to arrange, classify, and criticize the materials which earlier labors had amassed, while at the same time it was distinguished by an original subtlety and elegance. England felt the movement of the Renaissance somewhat later than France, and with less instinctive sympathy, 
but also without such active repugnance as had to be overcome in Germany. A few Englishmen had been pupils of the Italian masters. One of the earliest was William Selling, an Oxonian who died in 1495. Erasmus, when he came to Oxford in 1498, found there a congenial group of Hellenists, chief among whom were William Grosin and Thomas Linacre. Both had heard Politian at Florence. Linacre had also been a member of Aldo's Ne Academia at Venice. Another Oxonian who did much for the new learning in England was William Lilly, who had studied Greek in Rhodes and afterwards at Rome. There were others then at Oxford who had some knowledge of Greek, though the whole number cannot have been large. Few books, which could help a beginner with the first rudiments of Greek, had as yet found their way to England. An English student, desirous of acquiring that language, was, as a rule, obliged to go abroad. Erasmus mentions that John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, who began Greek late in life, had been dissuaded by Latimer from attempting it unless he could procure a teacher from Italy. John Collet, a scholar of most active mind and of great industry, lamented in 1516 that he had not been able to learn Greek, a deficiency which he afterwards made strenuous efforts to repair. But the Oxford Hellenists, though not numerous, represented a new ideal of humane learning and had a fruitful influence on its progress in England. At Cambridge, the study of Greek received its first impulse from the teaching of Erasmus between 1510 and 1513. He began with the rudiments, using first the Erotemata of Chrysoloras and then the larger manual of Theodoros Gaza. His class was a small one, but included some ardent students, such as his friend Henry Bullock, who, writing to him in 1516, reported that the Greek studies which he had initiated were being vigorously prosecuted. Richard Croke, of King's College, Cambridge, who took his degree in the year 1509-10, studied Greek at Oxford with William Grosin, went thence to Paris, and subsequently taught Greek at Cologne, Louvain, Leipzig, and Dresden. Returning to Cambridge in 1518, he began a course of lectures there on the Greek language, though without official sanction. In 1519, he was formally appointed University Reader of Greek and delivered a remarkable inaugural address in praise of Greek studies, which is still extant. His successor in the readership was a man of rare ability, Sir Thomas Smith, 1512-77, of Queen's College, who afterwards rose to eminence in the public service. Smith lectured on Greek with great success from about 1535 to 1540. In the latter year, Henry VIII founded the five Regius Professorships of Divinity, Civil Law, Physic, Hebrew, and Greek. Smith received the Chair of Civil Law. That of Greek was given to his close friend, John Cheek, 1514-57, of St. John's College, whose repute already stood very high. Roger Ascham was Cheek's contemporary and a member of the same college. Scarcely two years after Cheek's appointment, 
Ascham wrote an interesting letter from Cambridge to a fellow of St. John's, in which he describes the state of classical studies in the university. Aristotle and Plato, he mentions, are read by the undergraduates, as had indeed been the case at least in his own college for some five years. Sophocles and Euripides, he then says, are more familiar authors than Plautus was in your time, i.e. about 1525 to 35. Herodotus, Thucydides, and Xenophon are more conned and discussed than Livy was then. Demosthenes is as familiar an author as Cicero used to be, and there are more copies of Isocrates in use than there formerly were of Terence. Nor do we disregard the Latin authors, but study with the greatest zeal the choicest writers of the best period. It is Cheek's labor and example that have lighted up and continue to sustain this learned ardor. This was written in 1542. It is, perhaps, the most precise testimony that exists as to the state of Greek studies at any important English seat of learning at any moment in the 16th century. Great progress had evidently been made in the preceding 10 or 20 years. Sir John Cheek's services to Greek learning in his day were certainly unequaled in England. But Sir Thomas Smith deserves to be remembered along with him as a man who had also given a new and great impetus to those studies. Mention is due here to the important part which both these eminent men bore in a controversy which excited and divided the humanists of that age. The teachers, from whom the scholars of the Renaissance learned Greek, pronounced that language as Greeks do at the present day. In 1528, Erasmus published at Basel his dialogue, Directa Latini Greacic Sermones Pronuntiatoni. His protest was chiefly directed against the modern Greek ioticism, i.e. the pronunciation of several different vowels and diphthongs with the same sound, that of the Italian I. He rightly maintained that the ancients must have given to each of these vowels and diphthongs a distinctive sound, and he urged that it was both irrational and inconvenient not to do so. He also objected to the modern Greek mode of pronouncing certain consonants. His reformed pronunciation came to be known as the Erasmian, while that used by modern Greeks was called the Reuschlinian, because Reuschlin, whom Melanchthon followed, had upheld it. About 1535, Thomas Smith and John Cheek, then young men of about twenty, examined the question for themselves, and came to the conclusion that Erasmus was right. Thereupon Smith began to use the Erasmian pronunciation in his Greek lectures, though cautiously at first. Cheek and others supported him, and the reform was soon generally accepted. But in 1542, Bishop Gardiner, the Chancellor of the University, issued a decree enjoining a return to the Reuschlinian mode. Asham has described, not without humor, the discontent which this edict evoked. After Elizabeth's accession, the Erasmian method was restored. Meanwhile, in the first half of the 16th century, a classical training had been introduced into English schools. In developing this type of education, 
Italy had preceded England by about 80 years. Vittorino's school at Mantua, already described, was the earliest model. Winchester College had been founded when Vittorino was a boy. Eton College arose at a time when his school was in its zenith, but these great English foundations, since so distinguished as seats of classical teaching, came into being long before the humanistic influences of the Renaissance had begun to be felt in England. The oldest English school, which has been humanistic from its origin, is St. Paul's, founded by Dean Collet, who, in 1512, appointed William Lilly to be the first high master. Lilly was, as we have seen, among the pioneers of Greek study in England, though he is now best remembered by his Latin grammar. The Statutes of St. Paul's, 1518, enjoin that the the master shall be, quote, learned in good and clean Latin, and also in Greek, if such may be gotten, end quote. The proviso implies some scarcity, and in fact, it was not probably till about 1560 that Greek was thoroughly established among the regular studies of English schools. The Statutes of Harrow School, 1590, prescribed the teaching of some Greek orators and historians and of Hesiod's poems. This seems to be one of the earliest instances in our school statutes where the directions for Greek teaching are precise and not merely general. Many large public schools, such as Christ's Hospital, Westminster, Merchant Tailors, and Charterhouse, were established in or near London within a century after the foundation of St. Paul's School. In all these, the basis of study was humanistic, as it was also in many other grammar schools founded during the same period in various parts of the country. A general survey of English humanism in the 16th century supplies abundant evidence of zealous work and of a progress which, before the year 1600, had secured the future of classical studies in England. There were many able teachers, and a few who were really eminent in their day. Yet, in two respects, a comparison with the leading countries of the continent is disadvantageous for our country at that period. Britain produced in the 16th century no scholar of the first rank, though in George Buchanan, 1506-82, Scotland could show a consummate writer of the Latin language and our press sent forth few books which advanced Greek or Latin learning. Linacre's treatise, on certain points of Latin usage, De Emendata Structura Latini Sermonis, 1514, a work of the same class as Valla's Elegantiae, is one of the very few English books in that department of knowledge which attained to the distinction of being reprinted abroad, having been recommended to German students by Melanchthon and Camerarius. It was in the 17th century that English learning first became an important contributor to the European literature of humanism, and the earliest English name of the first magnitude is that of Richard Bentley. It should be recollected, however, that in the 16th century, the Greek and Latin languages were not the only channels through which England received the humanism of the Renaissance. 
English versions of the classics, such as Chapman's Homer, Thayer's Virgil, and North's Plutarch, circulated in a world larger than that of scholars. Italian authors who were themselves representative of the Renaissance also became known in English translations. Thus, the rendering of Tasso by Fairfax and of Ariosto by Harrington enabled English readers to appreciate the influence of the Renaissance on Italian poetry. Hobie's version of Castiglione's Cortegiano brought before them the new Italian ideal of intellectual and social accomplishment. Milton, the greatest humanist among poets of the first rank, best illustrates the various sources of culture, ancient and modern, but more especially Greek and Italian, which had become available for Englishmen not long before his own time. The modern sources had been opened to almost all who cared for literature, the ancient as yet less widely. It is the prerogative of Milton to fuse in a splendid unity both the ancient and the modern elements that have contributed to enrich his genius. He can be genuinely classical without loss of spontaneity or freshness. His poetry is not, however, the most characteristic expression of the English Renaissance in its larger aspects. That is to be found, rather, in the Elizabethan drama, and its supreme exponent is Shakespeare. While the revival of learning thus presents varying aspects in the several countries to which it passed from Italy, the essential gift which it brought was the same for all. That gift was the recovery of an inheritance which men had temporarily lost, one so valuable in itself that human life would be definitely poorer without it, and also fraught with such power to educate and to stimulate that the permanent loss of it would have been the annulment of an inestimable agency in the development of human faculty. The creative mind of ancient Greece was the greatest originating force which the world has seen. It left typical standards of form in poetry and prose as of plastic beauty in art. Ideas which sprang from it have been fruitful in every province of knowledge. The ancient Latin mind also, which received the lessons of Greece without losing its own individuality, was the parent of masterworks which bear its character, and of thoughts which are altogether its own. While both the classical literatures contain a varied wealth of observation and experience, there was a time when men had allowed the best part of these treasures to be buried out of sight, and had almost forgotten their existence. The Italians found them again, and gave them back to those races of Europe on which the future of civilization chiefly depended. It may be questioned whether any other people than the Italian would have been equal to achieving this great task. When Greek and Latin studies had once been resuscitated into a vigorous life, it was easy for nations outside of Italy to carry the work further. But wonderful qualities were demanded in the men who initiated and accomplished the revival in the 14th and 15th centuries. There are cases in which it is easier to apprehend the temper and tone of a past age 
than to picture the chief actors. Thucydides conveys a more vivid idea of Periclean Athens than of the statesmen by whose genius it had been molded. It is not so with the Italian Renaissance. From letters and other sources, one can form tolerably clear images of many among the foremost personalities, such as Petrarch, Boccaccio, Politian, and Aldo, even though it may be difficult to conceive such prodigies of versatility as a Battista Alberti or a Leonardo da Vinci. But it is a much harder thing to imagine the general atmosphere of the revival, the pervading enthusiasm, sustained through several generations, which was so prolific in many-sided work, so far-reaching in its influence on other lands. This atmosphere was created, this enthusiasm kindled, by the labors and examples of men extraordinary, both in their powers and in their ardor, Yet it may be doubted whether even they could have wrought so effectually had they not felt the motive which, at the Renaissance, was peculiar to Italians, that patriotism which, failing of political expression, was concentrated on restoring the ancestral language and literature. No other country could show a parallel to the zeal with which Latin was cultivated in Italy as the chief organ of literary expression from the days of Petrarch to those of Politian. The ancient tongue, not the modern, was that in which the ablest men of letters chiefly aspired to shine. Few masters of Italian prose emerge in the interval of about a century and a half, which separates the age of Villani and Boccaccio from that of Machiavelli and Guicciardini. Such men as Petrarch, Aeneas Silvius, Jovianus Pontanus and Paulus Jovius, who might have enriched the prose of their vernacular, preferred to write in Latin. The Platonic Academy of Florence was the first influential coterie which gave its sanction to the view that literary taste and skill, disciplined by the ancient models, could be worthily exercised in Italian. Lorenzo de' Medici set an example in his lyrics. A more authoritative one was given by Politian, especially in his Orfeo, the first Italian drama of true literary merit. This larger virtue of the classical Renaissance as educating a new capacity for culture in general, which came out in Italy only towards the close of the movement, was manifested in other countries almost as soon as they had been fully brought under the influences of the new learning. It was conspicuously seen in France, not merely in the work which classicists such as Ronsard and his group did for the French language, but also, for example, in the Aristophonic genius of Rabelais, the greatest literary representative of the Renaissance for France, in the same large sense that Cervantes was such for Spain, and Shakespeare for England. The historical importance of the classical revival in Italy depends ultimately on the fact that it broadened out into this diffusion of a general capacity for liberal culture, taking various forms under different local and national conditions. That capacity, once restored to the civilized world, became a part of the higher life of the race, an energy which, 
though it might be temporarily retarded here and there by reactionary forces, could not again be lost. Not in literature or in art alone, but in every form of intellectual activity, the Renaissance opened a new era for mankind. End of section 57 Recording by Linda Johnson